My name is Chris Hilkin. I'm from San Diego, California. Um, I have five kids, and uh, part of my story is last year I lost my wife to suicide. Um, and I, I tell that full story and its completion. I was at Cornerstone the week after Easter and got to share that story with, with all of you guys there. But I wanted to share a little bit of that as you guys are entering into this series and into this sacred space of having these conversations. Uh, for, for us, it was an onset by a, a medical diagnosis that ended up leading to sleeplessness. That sleeplessness led to deep trauma, and then that trauma just kind of rewired her brain on a fundamental level. And then it was it was trying to get help and trying to get therapy uh, with someone who uh, kind of at their core had mentally changed and things had just been altered. And you find yourself in a situation when you're going through it or a loved one's going through it where um, there's no eject button and there's no rip cord and there's there's not a parachute where you can get out of that and, and you're just kind of forced to sit front row to watch someone's descent into mental illness or for even listening to my wife and hear her feeling like she's grasping at straws and doesn't know um, which way's up in those different circumstances. And so that diagnosis, which led to trauma, that trauma led to psychosis, that psychosis led to a separation of understanding who she was at her core, which then led to suicidal ideation and ultimately inside of a mental health facility taking her life. Um, and it, it's just, the, it's the most shocking and um, life-altering, upsetting thing. You play that woulda, shoulda, coulda game over and over again. And, and so suicide is uniquely, I think, detrimental to groups of people because it leaves people sitting there wondering, what if, or how could I? And, um, and I think particularly in the church, there's such a stigma against mental health and anxiety and depression and psychosis and um, multiple personalities and schizophrenia, which is what my wife struggled with at the end, that um, you, you almost find yourself being wary of who you're talking to because you might find someone who wants to qu give you a quick spiritual platitude or a quick spiritual pill or and what they end up doing is that they end up in some ways implicating that if Paige in my case my wife's name if Paige would just do something differently this would all be fixed this help for it and solutions for mental health is this is this beautiful intrinsic haunting dance of of understanding and prayer and and um and vulnerability and grace for people and so I, I I couldn't be more proud of being associated, even from afar, with Cornerstone, who's taking this on. When we sit in moments like this, or when we sit in a congregation, or we sit in one of the Cornerstone campuses and we hear these conversations, we have the deep privilege of being mindful, calculated, sober, and those are all tools and privileges that are not adept to the person that's in the middle of this. Leaning in and listening, and paying attention and hearing and then believing what people are saying is paramount to starting to understand how we as a church are gonna to respond to the mental health crisis. And I, and I think so often we're, we're, we're quick to have the response or quick to have the answer. When with mental health, I think if you wanna be really helpful in the mental health community, be good at asking questions. And those have been the most helpful people in my grief and in our suffering and in Paige's experience as she was walking through this. Is, um, don't walk in ready to give a solution before you're ready to ask a good question. 
good question askers were always the people who helped the most. And those with the, the carte blanche, broad paintbrush, this helped this person that I know in Canada, so it should help you too. This is what, this is what helped over here, so this is what's gonna work for you too. And um, with the diversity that God made us with in his glory, we, our, our brains are diversified and our thoughts are diversified and our trauma is diversified and the impact it has on our brain is diversified. So, so some be all and end all solution to all mental health is also not the solution. So what do you do? You listen. As a church, I think what you guys are doing is awesome. And I think be good question askers and be good listeners. And I think that was, that's kind of our story. On the last journal entry that she has of her life, it is a prayer journal and it is a woman of deep faith and deep conviction and deep love of Jesus. And the whole page just says, deliver me. And God's answer was no. full reading of the Bible and its completion and the meta-narrative of, of redemption would show with complete certainty that the power of Jesus is greater than even our deepest moments of hopelessness. And Jesus said, I didn't come for the healthy, but for the sick. And for someone who's in mental health illness, it would just be so silly to say, I, can't, I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick, but not that kind of sick. What? Yeah, I came for the healthy, I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick. Like there's again, there's no conditional phrase there. There's no parent. There's no parentheses. There's no if and conjunctive phrases. It's just it's just case in point. I came for sick people, and for the the person that's struggling through these things, it's um, it's to realize that you don't do anything alone. The Satan loves. The enemy loves the lie that you are that no one can understand you and that no one is with you. When we pray to God about what we're going through or even our mental struggles, we don't have a Jesus that goes like, I wonder what that's like. You know, it's said on the cross that all of our sin and all of our pain and all of our shame and all of our past is heaped onto Jesus. He's forsaken by the Father. And so we certainly have a Jesus who's able to go, I know, I know, and I'm with you. I know, and I'm with you. And um, those are the deepest lies I think of the enemy. No one gets it. There is no hope and you are alone. And um, those are the promises of Jesus. I do know exactly what you're going through. There is hope and I am always with you. So uh, today we're talking about suicide. And you and I hear a story like that and we're left to ask ourselves, how's it possible how is it possible that a beautiful, vibrant woman who loved Jesus, five children, an amazing husband who's in ministry, becomes so hopeless uh, that she decides that taking her own life is the only solution? And when we see that, it rattles us a little bit, and it says if she can lose hope, then it feels like anyone can lose hope. My desperate prayer for us today is that if there's someone in this room who is in the midst of depression, who potentially is having suicidal thoughts, that today would be a day of hope for you. That you would say, there's, there's no reason for me to do a permanent solution to a temporary problem within my life. 
that for those of us who maybe know somebody, care about somebody who's struggling with depression and thoughts of suicide, that we would walk out of here today equipped to help. We talked last week about a gal by the name of Ruth who, when her mother-in-law was struggling with depression, said, I will walk this with you. I will not let you do it alone. And it's possible that some of us in this room are gonna be called on to be Ruth's in the lives of people who are struggling in this way. We're gonna dig into the life and the story of a guy by the name of Elijah. What you need to know about Elijah is he is actually one of the most powerful, one of the most vibrant uh, prophets in the Old Testament. And he is gonna go from a mountaintop high. He's gonna go from probably the pinnacle of his ministry, a moment of huge revival in Israel, a moment when God's power was displayed completely, and literally within a few days, he is gonna drop into the valley of depression and be saying, man, my life is over. I can't, I can't see a single good thing in my life, and I really just wanna die. And as we go through and look and say, how did that happen in the life of a vibrant follower of God? How did he get from mountaintop to valley low? You and I are gonna learn some lessons about keeping balance and health in our life and avoiding uh, that same mistake. And then we're gonna be able to watch as God meets with Elijah and gently counsels him back to hope. So here we go, grab your Bibles and go with me to 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 19, if you're not familiar, if you go to the front of your Bibles, start working to the right, you're gonna find this book of 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 19. You can't understand chapter 19 if you don't know chapter 18. So let me give you a summary of chapter 18. So what's been happening in Israel is that they have been looking at the Facebook and the Twitter accounts of their neighbors. Uh, all of their neighbors worship a God called Baal. And uh, they're going, man, life is so good. It's just, we just bought the new boat. We just got the vacation home. Our kids are all getting straight A's. It's great to be a follower of Baal. And the children of Israel begin to say, well, wait a minute. We're following God and our life isn't going that good. Maybe we should join them in worshiping Baal. Now, what you need to know is that Baal was a God of absolute darkness, Everything about Baal was about fertility. And here's why that was a big deal and so attractive. You gotta remember that everybody's a farmer. And because everybody's a farmer, fertility is a big deal. Uh, you want your soil to be fertile so that you have massive crops. Uh, you want your animals to be fertile so they have lots of other animals and all of your flocks and all of your herds grow. You want your wife to be fertile so she has lots of boys and they can help you on the farm. Fertility is a big deal. And a part of Baal worship was you would go annually to the temple, you would bring your offering, and then you would sleep with one of the temple prostitutes in order to increase fertility. In seasons when fertility wasn't happening, maybe the crops weren't coming, the rains weren't showing up, uh, then they would go to extreme worship. Uh, Baal was kind of a, a sitting kind of a god, a, li a little bit like um, Buddha. And uh, he'd had his hands out like this, and inside of his hands was a bowl. And when things weren't going well, 
they would light a fire underneath the bowl. And then to show Baal how devoted they were, they would take their firstborn children and toss them in the bowl. It is absolutely darkness. And yet the children of Israel have fallen into it because they believe the lives of their neighbors are better than their lives are when they follow God. Elijah comes on the scene and says, hey, you're telling me over a couple goats, over a bigger bushel of wheat, you're turning your back on God? How's that possible? I'll tell you what, let's figure out whose God is really God. And so he invites all of Israel to come up to a place called Mount Carmel. And a matter of fact, if you go to Israel today, you can actually go to the actual mountaintop there in Israel where this showdown takes place. Here's what Elijah says. He says to the 450 prophets of Baal, build yourself an altar and then put an animal, a sacrifice on top. I'll build an altar to Jehovah. I'll put an animal on top. And then we'll pray to our gods and ask them to light their own sacrifice, to send fire from heaven, start the sacrifice on fire. And then he says, and I'll even let you go first. So sure enough, the, the prophets of Baal build an altar, they put an animal on top, and now they begin to chant and to call unto Baal, bring fire down, light your sacrifice. Show everybody you're the God. And nothing happens. Elijah lets us go on till about noontime, and then he begins to taunt them. He goes, hey, uh, maybe your God's in the bathroom. Can't hear you right now, he's indisposed. Uh, maybe he's gone on a trip, you know, better yell louder. And the prophets of Baal begin to cut themselves in order to demonstrate their devotion, to show their sacrificial love for Baal, hoping that he will then send fire from heaven. Nothing happens. Then Elijah says to the people around, I'll tell you what, this is too easy for God. Go get four large jars of water, bring them up, pour them on top of the sacrifice. Dig a trench around the altar so that it can hold all the water. So they go get the four pots, they pour it on, he says, go do it again. They bring four more pots of water, they pour it on, he says, go do it again. And now they've poured 12 pots of water on the fire. And he does a simple prayer. He says, God, all these turkeys gathered around, they need to know you're God. Would you light your thing on fire? And all of a sudden, fire comes down from heaven. It laps up every drop of water, puts the altar on fire. And in that moment, Israel knows God is God. And revival breaks out in Israel. And then Elijah turns to them and says... So you don't need these false prophets. Kill them all. Now you gotta remember, it's Old Testament, right? So they do. The children of Israel grab swords. They kill all 450 prophets of Baal. I mean, this is, this is, I mean, think about this. When's the last time you prayed and fire came down from heaven? Uh, this, is, this is a pretty big moment. All of Israel has experienced, this is mountaintop experience in the life of Elijah. And here's the interesting thing. In just a couple of days, he will be saying to God, my life is worthless. There's no reason for me to live. God, why don't you just kill me? Mountaintop experience, darkness of the valley. So here we go. First Kings chapter 19, we're gonna watch Elijah's descent into the valley. 
First Kings chapter 19, starting in verse one, here's what it says. Now Ahab, Ahab was the king of Israel who had led Israel into Baal worship. He had encouraged it. He'd supported it financially. Uh, Ahab told Jezebel, that's his wife, the queen of Israel. He told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Elijah, I'm gonna kill you. Elijah was afraid. Think about this for a moment. He just called fire from heaven. He just killed 450 prophets of Baal and now he's afraid of a narky woman. We'll figure it out in a minute. Here we go. Elijah was afraid. He ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom brush, sat down under it, and he prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than one of my dead ancestors. So th th think about this for a moment. He's afraid of Jezebel killing him. But now in his depression, he says, hey, God, it'd be better off. Why don't you kill me? And guys, what we need to understand is, is that in depression, our thinking gets turned and tumbled all upside down. I want to say this with gentleness. If, if you're here today and you're living in depression, I can just promise you, you're not thinking well. The very things that are gonna feel intuitive of you, the things you're gonna think, in my depression, this is what I need to do, will actually be the worst things you could do, the opposite of what would be healthy for you to do. Because in depression, we do not think well. I'm afraid of a queen killing me. Oh, by the way, God, why don't you just kill me? How does it happen? Okay, so here's what you need to know. You and I are three-part creatures. You and I are physical. You and I are soulish. We have souls. Uh, this is where our emotions come from. And you and I are spiritual. Uh, three-part creatures. What has happened in Elijah's life is every one of these areas has come and gotten out of balance within his life. So remember in the story, when he becomes afraid of Jezebel, he begins to run in the wilderness. He's running nonstop. I don't know about you, if I run for a minute and a half, I'm tired. He has been running nonstop now for well over a day. He's not eating, he's not sleeping, he's just in panic running. And his body, his physicalness is absolutely, whoops, if I write sloppy enough, you won't tell that I misspelled it. His, he's depleted, right? He's physically depleted. Let's be honest for a minute. How many of you, when you get really, really hungry or really, really tired, you get hangry with everybody around you? Come on. All right, everybody with your hand down right now, you're a liar. You're lying. Because here's the deal, it's interesting. 
you and I have, are depleted physically, and yet it comes out emotionally, right? We, we're physically depleted, but man, our patience goes away. I tell people all the time, I am a really good Christian until I am really tired or really hungry, and then Jesus is absent. Time to, there is no Jesus. I mean, I just, I say the worst things. I am the least patience in my life. And guys, I'm just telling you that when you are physically depleted, you will not behave the way you need to behave. You will not think the way. And Elijah is physically worn out from running. The second thing that happens in the story, did you catch the bite? He runs away. So stop and think about what happens when he runs away. He leaves his family. He leaves his friends behind. So he's isolating in his life, right? Anybody who could have said, Elijah, think about what you just did. Anyone who could have encouraged him is long in the rearview mirror. And then he turns to his servant, the last person in his life, and says to him, you stay here, I'm gonna keep running. Elijah has absolutely isolated himself from anybody. Remember we said when you're in depression, you don't think clearly, and now he's isolated himself from anybody who could have spoken truth to him, could have encouraged him. I've got a dear, dear friend in ministry, and uh, his little boy, a toddler, uh, found his way into the swimming pool and drowned. And after having gone through the experience of days and days inside the hospital, praying for the little boy, hoping that he would get well, and then finally the doctors come in and saying there's no hope, first thing he and his wife did, they isolated. They went off by themselves. They didn't tell anybody where they went. They wouldn't return any uh, texts. They wouldn't take any phone calls. They shut the curtains, sat in the dark, alone emotionally exhausted, but isolated from anybody who could have filled them emotionally. And Elijah's done exactly the same. And then finally, he's gonna be spiritually depleted. It doesn't actually say this in the text, so you're gonna have to just kind of take uh, my word for this, but. I know what Elijah's going through. There's something about being on a mountaintop experience. There's something about just pouring out your soul spiritually that when you're done, I mean, the tank feels empty. So pre-COVID, we were doing uh, six services here every single weekend. And I'm just telling you, on Monday, I was worthless. There was just nothing left in the tank come Monday. And wouldn't you know that it was always on Monday that somebody would send me an email and they'd say, Lynn, your sermon on Sunday, worst sermon ever. Or they'd say, you're the lousiest pastor I've ever seen. And if, if I, my tank had been okay spiritually, you know what I would have done in a moment like that? I would have just said, your mom sucks on dirty gym socks, and I'd have thrown it away. <laughs> I'd have been fine. But can I tell you that in that moment of depletion, that coming from the high of service after service being filled and just God using me to speak, coming off of that, there was nothing left. And when they, then all of a sudden I found myself going, man, maybe that sermon on Sunday really was bad. I bet you half the congregation's not coming back next week. Maybe I am the worst pastor ever. I should just go on the corner and sell hot dogs. Because I'm just telling you that, that when you're depleted physically, emotionally, and spiritually, 
Small things look monumental. Whatever problem you look at in that moment is gonna look 10 times bigger than it is because you're depleted in your life. So here's what happens with all of us. All of us have intake, right? So this is what's coming into my life spiritually. This is what's coming into my life physically. This is what's coming into my life emotionally. And all things being equal, I begin to build up a reservoir, right? I've I've got more coming in than I need, and so I've got a surplus going on in my life. But then there comes the moment in life that is greater than my input. And all of a sudden, the output, the struggles I'm having are massive, and suddenly the input amount cannot keep up with the output, and I go dry. That's when depression comes. That's, that's when I just go, oh, there's no answer to this. It, it'll never go away. I would be better off dead than alive. And guys, I'm just gonna say that one of the most powerful things you can do in this moment is take an inventory. And rather than focusing on the problem of the moment, is simply say, hey, wait, 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 wait. Am I actually in a healthy spot? See, if, if I were healthy, there would be more coming into my life than is going out of my life. So am I physically, am I getting the sleep I ought to be getting? Am I eating healthy, good food? Or is every single meal Big Mac McDonald's? Am I healthy physically? Secondly, am I okay emotionally? Do I have friends around me who are encouraging me and pouring into me and lifting me up? Am I living in community? And then finally, how are me and God doing? Am I in devotions? Am I faithful in church? Is my input greater than my output? Because chances are, you're just as out of balance as Elijah was that day. It's why you find yourself saying, it'd be better. It'd be better if my life just ended now. What happens next is incredible because God, rather than rebuking Elijah, rather than telling him how silly he is for how he thinks, is gonna gently comfort and restore his prophet. So back to the passage. Starting in verse uh, five, then Elijah, he lay down under the bush and he fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and he drank and he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and he ate and he drank and he strengthened by the food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Isn't it interesting? Think about this. Isn't it interesting? Before God does any talking, before God tries to sit Elijah down and say, let's think about this rationally, that God says, hey, you know what? You need to get physically okay. You need to eat. You need to restore. You need to have greater input than you've got output physically in your life. And guys, isn't it interesting that if you even go to doctors who are talking to people who are struggling with depression, one of the first things they say is, hey, let's look at your diet. Are you exercising? Are you getting outside in the sunlight? Are you you doing those things which just keep your body in tune and healthy? 
And guys, it may be possible that the person you love in your life, the person that you wanna help, needs someone who just says, hey, let's get up, let's go to the gym. Let's, let's go get something healthy to eat. Let's talk about your sleep. Back to the passage. Verse nine. There he went into a cave and he spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him and he asked, what are you doing here, Elijah? I don't think God does this in a condemning tone. I don't think he does this to guilt Elijah. I think he does this to remind Elijah. Elijah, you're the prophet who stands on Mount Carmel, who has the courage to stand in front of 450 false prophets, call the children of Israel back to revival, pray, and fire comes from heaven. Elijah, what are you doing here? running from a woman, depressed out of your mind, wanting your life to end. How did you get here? Most of you would know that uh, years ago, I was a youth pastor in Southern California just before I came and we started uh, Cornerstone. Just a year or so before I came, there was a family in our church. They had a niece who had been really, really abused in her family, and so they made the decision to allow their niece to come live with them, which meant then she was in my youth group coming to church, and when she came in, I mean, she was broken. I mean, she was broken. And in the process of being there in that group, she figured out Jesus. And guys, I'm just, you've never seen a young come more alive. I mean, literally, her whole countenance changing. She was vibrant. A little before I left, she began to date a young man. And every one of us looked and said, oh my goodness, you couldn't have put two more different, two people who don't belong together, together. But the problem was they'd started sleeping together. And when you're sleeping together, you're not thinking really well. No friend, no one could tell them, hey, you realize this isn't the person you need to be with. And so they ran off. When she called me, it was now about six or seven years later, I was here at Cornerstone and we sat outside in the lobby and in those short period of time, she'd been married and divorced three times. Uh, she had abused alcohol and she'd abused drugs trying to cover up the pain. If you would have seen her, she physically did not look like the same person. She had to tell me her name so that I could recognize her. And I asked her, how did we get here? And I didn't do that in condemnation. I reminded her of the vibrant girl I'd seen in that youth group, the girl who was all in love with Jesus, who literally glowed with his presence. And she looked at me and she said, Lynn, I've been running. And I've made bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. And I said to her, you realize you could be that girl again? Because that's who you really are. See, I think one of the things we need to ask, whether I'm the person in depression or the friend of the one is, hey, how, how did we get here? What are the things we did and what, what brought us to this moment in our lives? How did we get here, Elijah? Back to the passage. Verse 10, Elijah replies, Look, man, it's been really tough to follow you, God. He says, he says I've been very zealous for the Lord Almighty, 
The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down uh, your altars. They have put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord said, go out and stand in the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak up over his face and he went out and he stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him again, what are you doing here, Elijah? I love that. I mean, if all the moments, couldn't God have rebuked him? I mean, couldn't God have said, come on, you're being really, really silly right now, Elijah. Have you forgotten? What are you doing, Elijah? You're running in fear from a woman. You just killed 450 prophets. He doesn't do that. The Bible says he came in a gentle voice. And I just want to say to you, if you're here and if you're struggling with depression, Listen, that the God of the universe would come to you in a gentle voice and say, we can, we can do this. It's interesting, in the video uh, where Chris Hilkin was talking about his wife, she wrote on the page and she said, God deliver me and God chose not to deliver her but I'll tell you what he was willing to do he was willing to walk with her through her depression to a place of hope. And I'm just gonna say to you that if you're struggling, God, God may not just instantly take that away from you, but he will walk with you to a place of hope again with a gentle voice. Back to the passage. Verse 14, he replied, Elijah replied, I've been very zealous for you, Lord Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars and put your prophets to death. And with your prophets to death, they have with the sword, I am the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord said to him, go back the way you came, go to the desert of Damascus and there, and when you get there, anoint Haziel, king over Aram, also anoint Jehu, Remember that name, anoint Jehu, son of Nishi, king over Israel, and anoint Elijah, son of Saphat, from Abel Manoah, and to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Haziel, and Elijah will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. Two things happen. He says to, to Elijah, hey Elijah, go back the way you came. Go back, go back to your family. Go back to your friends who care about you. Go back to your church. Go back to the people who can pour into your life. Why are you here in a cave by yourself? Go back to the community of people who will invest in you and hold your arms up in a moment like this. 
And I just need to say to anybody in this room that's struggling with depression, I know, I know, I know that the most intuitive thing you have is that I, no one understands, no one gets it, I just need to be by myself. Go back. Go back to the people who love you. Go back to the people who care about you. The people who, when you're not thinking clearly, will speak truth and clarity in your life. Go back. And then it's interesting. He actually asked the prophet to go back and start behaving like a prophet. He asked him to go back and begin to start doing ministry again. Remember, he says, hey, go anoint uh, Aziel as king. Go anoint Jehu as king. Go anoint uh, Elisha to be your successor. Go start blessing somebody else. Do something that's not all about you. Do something for someone else. And can I tell you that if you're living in depression, one of the most powerful things you can do is begin to do something in kindness for someone. Even if it's as simple as going to the Finney's Gospel Mission and pouring soup for someone whose life is worse than yours. Or becoming part of the coffee ministry and just making coffee so that people coming on the campus can. What will happen in your heart is you'll begin to see God use you. You'll begin to see God use you in the present. And if God can use you in the present, it will remind you that he can use you in the future. And that he has a purpose. And that he has a plan for you that's not done yet. The formula, what God does in Elijah's life, turns his heart. It completely turns him around. And for all of us in the room who are caring about somebody who's struggling with deep depression and maybe suicidal thoughts, he just gave you and I a pathway. He gave you and I a formula uh, to help. So let's think about it again, just really quickly. He begins to answer the physical. He bakes bread. He says, look, we're just gonna get you physically healthy. You can't think straight when your stomach is angry. He then says, hey, uh, we're gonna remind you of what your life was like when you and God were in step, when, when, when you were following it, we're gonna remind you what that was and it can be that way again. Just like I reminded my friend, hey, you're not the girl sitting in front of me. You can be the girl that was in the youth group if you want to. Uh, he then says, hey, go back. Get back in relationship. Get around the people who care about you and people who love you. And then finally, let's find you a way to minister. Because if you can start believing that God can use you in your present, then you'll also believe that God can use you in his future. Here's something that's interesting. Somehow, somehow Elijah forgets that the God who met him on Mount Carmel, the God who was able to bring fire down from heaven and bring revival in the land to kill 450 prophets of Baal is stronger than one woman who was standing against him. Remember in the passage it said, hey, go anoint Haziel, go anoint Jehu, well, it just so happens that Jehu will then walk into Jerusalem as king, because remember Elijah anointed him, he'll call out and say, who's with me? And three of Jezebel's eunuchs will call out from the balcony, 
we're with you. And then he says, if you're with me, throw that woman from the balcony. Got to remember, it's Old Testament, right? So the three eunuchs take Jezebel. They throw her from the balcony. She falls to the street. They leave the body there, and the dogs eat her. Don't get involved in the gross. You realize, think about this, you realize God took care of Elijah's problem without even using Elijah to solve it. And guys, I'm just telling you, whatever that thing is that looks so big and so monumental and looks like it could never be fixed, there is a God who's bigger than the problem. And if you would simply stay faithful, if you would simply say, God, I need you to walk with me through this, it's possible he would take care of the problem without you lifting a finger. He's capable of fire from heaven and throwing Jezebels from balconies. For all of us in the room who maybe are struggling today with depression, and maybe you're thinking about ending, can I, can I just say to you, suicide is a permanent solution for a temporary problem. It, it's like killing a fly with a stick of dynamite. And, and w- before you get weird, I'm not saying your problem's a fly. I'm not saying that. I'm not diminishing your struggle. I'm saying the solution of suicide is so radical, it's so beyond what is necessary, and it causes collateral damage. It's a horrible solution. When I was in Bible college, I had a best, best friend. His name was David, and we ended up being roommates. Uh, We played football on the football team together. We ended up working at the same freight dock, loading trucks together. Uh, Later on, we moved out into an apartment together. We went to church together. I mean, we were together 24-7. We were besties. Uh, One day, there was our sophomore year, there was a girl who walked on campus. I got in the car. I said, David, I'm going to date that girl. He said, no, I'm going to date that girl. We flipped a coin. He won. He ended up marrying her. Years later, when they were having marital problems, he moved into my tiny little house with Lisa and me to give them a second chance. Two months ago, I got DM'd. It was his daughter. And she said, Lynn, I don't know if you know, David took his life. So I flew back to Texas, sat in a funeral, and I asked them, I said, why? Why would he do this? And they said, you know, we don't know. His, his wife died during COVID, and maybe that had him depressed, but he'd been dating again, and he was engaged. We don't know. But I sat through a funeral, and I watched his daughters weep, and I watched his grandchildren mourn. And I'm just saying to you, if you're thinking that that's somehow suicide is a solution, that it'll end your pain, it doesn't end pain. It simply transfers it to the people you love. The people who care the most about you in your life will now feel the pain. 
it doesn't solve anything. It just wounds all the people you care about. It's not an answer. I've got a dear friend and she shared with me the story that when she was younger, she just looked at her life and said, there's nothing, there's nothing worth living for. And she attempted suicide. And by the grace of God, she wasn't successful. Today, she's married to a remarkable man. They're both in ministry. Matter of fact, they're both in ministry at Cornerstone. And every single week, she touches more than 5,000 lives with her ministry. And every single week, she thanks God that she was not successful. I'm just telling you, there's hope. There's hope. Until, until you decide to not give God a chance to redeem and to restore what feels so broken. Suicide is literally the worst answer ever. Let's pray. Hey, dearest Heavenly Father, I just, I just come before you today and I, I pray over this crowd and God, anybody who's in the room who might be living in the midst of depression, God, would you simply come to them in that gentle voice? Would, would you help them if it's physical that they would start exercising, they'd start eating the way that they need to eat? God, would you remind them what their life was like when they were following you and obeying you and the thrill and the joy that they had that can be theirs again? God, would you say, go back. Go back to the family that loves you. Go back to the friends that love you. Even if they stumble over their words, go back. God, would you give them the opportunity to bless somebody else's life, to see and be reminded what it's like to have you use them in the present so that they would know that there's a future a purpose for their lives that still hasn't happened yet. God, this I pray in Jesus' precious name, amen. Okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. So we're gonna do something totally different than we just did. We're gonna do something that actually is part of celebration and joy uh, right now. I'm gonna ask Landon and some of our elders to come up here on stage. So this is Landon McDonald. I think many of you know he spoke several, lots of times in our auditorium. Uh, this is Kerry Newton. He's one of our elders. This is Scott Shelberg, another uh, one of our elders. So here's what you need to know. One of our greatest joys is to have young men and young women who come and serve here at Cornerstone. And during that tenure, hopefully their giftedness and what God's done in their lives only increases and gets stronger and better. And uh, I need you to know that Mission Church uh, has asked Landon to come and be their primary speaking pastor over there. And uh, we honestly could not be more proud 
to see how God has used Landon while he's here, but the expectation that God has actually given him a bigger stage and a bigger forum with which to use his gifts, and the thought that you and I might have been a little bit along that journey of helping to get him uh, ready for that new assignment. So here's what I want to do. I want to ask uh, our elder, Kerry Newton, to, uh, to pray for him, and then I'm going to pray for him, and we're going to honor and bless him as we send him over to mission. Gracious Heavenly Father, we just come to you and give you all the thanks and the praise and the glory. And Father God, we just thank you for this time spent for Landon, blessing the lives of Cornerstone and just his influence and impact that he's had on us all. Father God, we just ask that you would bless his new assignment and that we'd send him on his way and that he may touch and influence the people at mission as well. And Father, we just ask you to continue to bless on his family and put that protection around him. Mm. In your loving name we pray, amen. Hey, dear Heavenly Father, we, man, we just thank you for the privilege of having Landon here for a season. We thank you that he's been a friend and he's been a minister. And uh, God, we just ask that you would take the gift that we see so evidently in him and we've watched that gift grow and get stronger and stronger. God, would you magnify it, make it even more powerful as he goes over to mission. God, may that church be so blessed by him that we would look back in just a short time and say, wow, that's exactly what God had intended and we had the privilege of launching him out. God, thank you for the bigger platform you've given him, the greater opportunity. God, we're just so proud of Landon. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Honor you, brother. Man, what an incredible, incredible service. Listen, I know today's topic is very different. It's not one that we address often in church. And here's what we want you to know. We want you to know that if you're here and you have been wrestling with thoughts of suicide, we want to remind you that you're not alone, that your church is right here, ready to walk hand in hand with you and give you support. One of the ways that we're doing this is you can simply text the word support to 21999. There's a whole team of people that's ready to walk with you, love on you, give you resources, give you counseling to help you get through this moment, this season in your life. You also may be saying, hey, I need prayer or I know a friend or a relative that needs prayer. I would encourage you to text the word prayer to 21999. Again, I cannot stress it enough how much we as a church love you. I can't stress enough how much our Lord and Savior Jesus loves you. And with that being said, our prayer is, is whatever you're dealing with, that you will come out of this completely and totally victorious. Thanks so much for joining us this weekend, and we can't wait to see you again next time.